0: everybody can see the Bible. All right, I'm going to read and then we'll pray and then um, jump into what we're going to talk about today. So Luke chapter 1. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also Having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. Thank you that you leave us tangible examples of who you are. Lord, we are prone to worship anything except you. And I thank you, Lord. For giving us your word so that we can see you, understand you. We are born dead spiritually. You're a foreign concept to us, your kingdom, your ways. They're alien to us. And I thank you, Lord, that we have your word, that we can see who you are, that we can see your glory, that we can see true life, that we can be ushered into life with you. I pray this morning as we talk about the book of Luke, pray that our hearts will be encouraged, that they'll be open to you. And I pray that you're Your truth will go forth, and I pray that you would get the glory. In your name, amen. So this morning, we are going to be introducing the book of Luke. And um, we're going to be going through the book of Luke as a church um, for some time. It's a long book in the New Testament. It's uh, 24 chapters. The chapters are quite long as Bible chapters go. So if you think about... um, We did two sermons per chapter. That's 48 weeks. So we will probably be in Luke for um, all of 2017, potentially into 2018. Now, we are going to take some breaks. We'll do some sermon series uh, along the way. So Travis and Sean just finished an excellent sermon series on biblical rest. So we'll take some breaks to do some series like that along the way. But uh, we're going to be in the book for a long time. And um, as I've been Studying and getting prepared for this message, my heart's been really encouraged just to see all that God wants to say to us through this book. I'm excited about the book of Luke. I don't know if you're supposed to have favorites among the Gospels, but I really like this one. Uh, It's the one that we read on Christmas Day um, when we're reading about the birth of Jesus because we're spiritual and good parents. So that's what we do on Christmas Day. Um, But no, seriously, this is the one that we read because it has a lot of detail in it. You get a lot of detail around Zechariah and around the birth of John the Baptist. You get a lot of detail around the angel appearing to Mary, telling her what's going to happen and who Jesus is going to be. You get the story of Jesus being born and laid in the manger. Uh, You get the story of of the angels appearing to the shepherds uh, and telling them and praising God about who this Savior is. So, um, So there's a lot in it. Uh, so the overview of what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the first four verses here, this prologue for the book. Um, and then we're, we'll do that relatively quickly, and then we're going to talk about some specific things in the book. So we're going to talk about God's sovereignty and how he put, put the book together. We're going to talk about the timing uh, of the book and the historical context as to when the book was written, what was happening then. We're going to talk about Luke. We're going to talk about the author uh, the general messages. So there are some some common general messages throughout the book, and then there's some really uh, there are three key points of emphasis that you'll see in the book of Luke, um, and then I want to close with the story of the ten lepers that kind of sums up a lot of the points of emphasis that um, that God's trying to make through us through Luke's narrative here. So um, so we have a lot to cover um, as it's it's a big book, but. Um, we should be able to uh, to get through it all. So, let's start with the uh, the first four chap- or the first four verses, not the first four chapters. Um, so Luke sets out here to write about Jesus's life, and he says um, early on that a lot of people have been writing about these things. So in, in uh, the very first part, he says many have undertaken to compile the narrative. So uh, he's he's not saying that he's the first. Um, we don't know exactly who these many are that he's talking about. He's probably at least including Mark in there. Mark's gospel is, is widely considered the first gospel to be written. So um, so he's probably talking about that. Uh, but he's also going to be referencing, you know, some other things as well. So w- this should give us some encouragement because there are times that God lays something on our heart as believers and it can be tempting to think, well, a lot of other people have already done this, so why, why do I need to do it? Um, and that may be true. God may not be calling you to do something, but here Luke's kind of acknowledging, look, hey, a lot of people have done this, but God's put this on my heart, and so, um, you know, his goal here is to compile an informed, orderly narrative, so he wants to, to give, you know, some, some real accuracy as to what happened in Jesus's life. Luke's connected to Acts, so when Luke originally set out to, to write this, it was all written as one work. He wrote Luke and Acts. It was one kind of complete writing. So he wrote the book of Luke that talks about Jesus' life. It's a narrative of who Jesus was, what he did, the, his death for us, and his, um, his rising to conquer death. And then he transitions to a narrative of Acts where he talks about the early church and what the early church fathers did and how they were. And so it's broken up into two pieces in our Bible, but it was written originally as one piece, um, and Luke is often praised, if you read, uh, whether it's Christian commentators or, or uh, people who, who don't profess Christianity but are uh, but are historians, they'll praise Luke for his, um, he was a gifted historian in the way that he recounts things, um, he's praised for his literary ability and how he writes things, how he composes things, how he puts things together, the words he uses, and so um, Luke's main point, the, the one thing he's really concerned with is truth and accuracy. So he was not an eyewitness of Jesus. He was not an apostle, but he was part of the early church. He spent a lot of time with the church fathers. He was a companion of Paul. He spent a lot of time with Paul. And he's very deliberate and intentional in um, interviewing people and investigating what happened and gathering reports, again, some written, some oral and that day, a lot of history was passed down by mouth. It wasn't all written down. And so he's very, um, he's very focused on making sure that he's got a connection with truth and accuracy. Um, he's writing this to Theophilus. We don't know much about Theophilus. Theophilus' name means lover of God. We don't know if he was a believer. Um, he may very well have been, but Luke does not address him as a brother, which when you're reading in the New Testament, it's common that, Believers will address each other as brothers. Um, so Luke doesn't do that here. Um, so he may not be a believer, but but he may be a believer. At a minimum, he had some interest in the gospel or some interest in the life of Jesus. And so um, he uses the title most excellent. And that may be a title of courtesy, but it probably more likely implied some some kind of rank. So in the time that uh, that this is written, society was broken into a lot of different layers and a lot of different levels. And so um, he probably has some, some level of rank in Roman society or in the society that Luke is writing to him. It's possible that Theophilus was going to be the publisher of the gospel. So Luke was, um, was writing this probably with the intention of it being widely disseminated with a lot of people reading it. And so it may be that Theophilus was going to be the conduit for how that got out to others um, but the main point of, of, he tells us right here in his prologue what his main point is. And um, it's that Christianity is, is real and that it's trustworthy. And so um, Ned Stonehouse said, comments on it this way. He says, the main impact of the prologue here is that Christianity is true and capable of confirmation by appeal to what happened. So Luke wants us to know that these things are real and that they're trustworthy. So that's a little bit about um, kind of the prologue. So now I want to move and I want to talk some about God's sovereignty. Um, so feel you'll, you'll flip to the next side. So the um, one thing to keep in mind is God is uh, sovereign. That means he's in control. He has the power over all of history. So from the beginning of creation to the end of time, God is sovereignly working his plan. So it's important for us anytime we come to a gospel to remember that these accounts are not in there haphazardly or accidentally. God has intentionally placed them in there for us to read. And so John kind of alludes to this in his gospel, at the very end of his gospel in John 21, 25, he says this, Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. So he's just given a recount of Jesus' life. He says there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John's telling us Jesus did a lot. He had a lot of conversations. He did a lot of miracles. He did a lot of admonishing, of teaching, of rebuking. In fact, it was so much that had it all been recorded, John speculates the world couldn't, couldn't hold it. So what we're given here is a very, very small microcosm of the life of Jesus. And so each one of these pieces is in here intentionally, and God wants to use it in a way to communicate to us. So we should cling to each piece as important. Some of them are going to be hard to understand, but again, you know, we are born spiritually dead, and so understanding God and his kingdom through sanctification is something that's going to be ongoing until, until we do have complete knowledge and we're with him in glory. So keep that in mind. Um, one thing to keep in mind is in Luke and in all of these gospels, we get no uh, shred of evidence of what Jesus looked like. So we don't know if he was tall, if he was short. We don't know if he was lean, if he was plump. We don't know what kind of jokes he told. We don't know what eye color he had. We don't know anything about How He looked and that's intentional God if God wanted us to know those things they would be in there But as I was thinking about this We are so prone to worship anything Except God and so can you imagine if we knew Jesus had green eyes every Christian would be praying that their baby Has green eyes because we would view these certain traits as more holy if we had anything about what Jesus looked like and that's not the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is who Jesus was and what he did. So I'm very thankful. And, and, and as I was thinking about this, the, the connection in the Old Testament with Samuel came to mind. So Samuel was one of God's um, most honored uh, priests for the nation of Israel. And so Samuel uses God uses Samuel to anoint kings. And so once God has rejected Saul as king over Israel, he tells Samuel, hey, I've appointed a new king. I want you to go to the house of Jesse, and I'm going to tell you which one of his sons is going to be king. And so Samuel goes, and listen to what it says. Um, keep in mind, Samuel, Samuel dialogues directly with God. So this is somebody who has a good understanding of who God is. So in 1 Samuel 16, 6 through 8, when they, this is what it says. When they came, that means Jesse's sons. so Jesse brings in his sons, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height or on the height of his stature. So he is probably a tall guy like myself. And so he says, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man sees the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so... We don't know anything about Jesus' physical appearance or personality. And that's important because what is important about Jesus is not what he looked like or, or how he acted, but it was what Jesus did and who he was. He was the Son of God, and that's more important than any of his personality traits or physical appearance. So let's move and talk about the time, the time that the book was written and then just the kind of the historical context of the, uh, of the time. So we don't know for sure the date that the book was written. There are kind of three main suggestions: um, either it was written around uh, AD sixty-three, AD seventy-five to eighty-two, or sometime early in the second century. Now, a lot of commentators favor AD sixty-three. Again, we don't know for sure. Uh, that fits well because Luke—nothing that Luke records in the Book of Luke or in the Book of Acts goes past the date of A.D. 62. So we don't get in the book of Acts uh, how or when Paul died. Uh, we don't get in the book of Acts the fall of Jerusalem, which which was prophesied about. That happened in A.D. 70. So um, so that date of A.D. 63 would fit pretty well in that why Luke only wrote up to a certain point and then not beyond that. Um, more importantly, let's talk about the historical context of what what. First century life was like. Um, so, those in authority, kind of those who were in power, enjoyed a decent amount of freedom, much more so than the masses. But in general, people didn't enjoy a lot of the freedoms and rights that we have today. So, Jesus, at the time that he's born, the Romans are in charge of most of the ancient world. So, the Jewish people, the Jewish nation has been conquered, the Romans have come in. They're ruling over Israel. They're ruling over most of the rest of the world. And um, they're, so they're kind of in, in charge. They kind of get to call the shots. Uh, and they view themselves as far superior to any other kind of nationality or race. And so Jesus comes, and he has these kind of radical messages for, for the, the Jewish people, but also just for it, kind of for the world at large. So he comes, and he proclaims salvation for all people. Now, this would have been a pretty radical message for the Jewish people because they viewed themselves as superior. They viewed themselves as God's kind of chosen people and that they were superior to to kind of the other races and nations in the world. And so um, Jesus comes and says, hey, regardless of race, social status, economic status, salvation is for all people. And he proclaims this message that all human life matters. So in that period of time, Women, children, uh, the poor didn't have didn't have a lot of rights, and they could be easily abused and abused and taken advantage of by those in power without much repercussion. And so um, Jesus comes and he says, um, you know, he basically challenges this these status quo's and proclaims salvation for all people, and and not just for those who are who are in power. Um, and he offers an example, another radical message of one who's in power, but instead of kind of lording over those in authority underneath him, he, he serves. He comes as one who serves, who offers himself um, on behalf of his people, even to the point of dying. He's willing to serve and be killed um, so that we would have access to salvation. This is a radical message today. I mean, not, it was a radical message then, because basically the way you came to power often was by the sword, by by victories, by by slaying and killing people and subduing other people, and so Jesus comes and says, "No, real power is demonstrated through humble service to other people um, and and that message kind of is you know if you know much about history, which i don 't, but anything I have read about history, usually those in charge are are kind of clinging to and lording over those who are under their care instead of serving them and offering themselves. And then he comes and he brings this idea of kind of true healing and freedom. And um, this idea is explored by Miroslav Volf. he He writes an excellent book called Exclusion and Embrace. And in that book, he talks about how most revolutions, most regimes that are overthrown, most changes of power, all you do is you just switch sides. And so... What happens most of the time is those who are being oppressed now become the oppressors, and so he gives he gives countless examples of this through history. But but it's and most people when they're fighting for change, they're really just fighting to gain power over the other side. And so what you see is those who were um, under the pain of being oppressed now become those who inflict pain on those who were the oppressors. And he talks about how the gospel is the only message that can bring true healing and freedom. And it's the only message that can give oppressors the ability to view those they're oppressing um, with with dignity and as valuable and being willing to serve them. And he talks about how the gospel is the only message that can give the oppressed the ability to be able to forgive and heal those who have oppressed them, instead of just trying to flip the script. And so, this message is is pretty radical, and Miroslav Volf, when he wrote this, he's from Croatia, and he wrote this in the late 90s, and if you read anything about it that happened in Croatia in the early 90s, there's all kinds of genocide and abuse, I mean, some of the things that happened there make, you know, the Vikings look like nice, caring people, So he's writing this from a position of having seen a lot with his own eyes and how the gospel is the only way that can break in and bring healing. Um, So let's talk about the author, Luke, a little bit. So we know he was a doctor. Uh, Paul refers to him as the beloved physician in Colossians 4.14. We know he was a companion of Paul. He spent a lot of time with Paul. Paul references him a lot in his writings. Um, He may have been Paul's personal physician, um, if you remember, Paul went through a lot of trauma. He was stoned and left for dead. He was bitten by a poisonous snake. He was definitely somebody that would need a doctor to check in and care for him, um, as he had a lot of bad things that happened to him physically. He was in prison often, and a lot of those prisons in those days were, were kind of like cesspools where um, they were not pleasant places to suffer. And so uh, we know he spent a lot of time with Paul. Um, He wrote Luke and Acts. He's the only gospel writer that that wrote a sequel uh, to his gospel narrative. And he actually wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. Now, Paul wrote the most amount of books. But if you just look at the length of content, Luke wrote a lot. Uh, In fact, he wrote the most. And so also, if you think about um, Paul and Luke spending a lot of time together. So you have Luke writing a great deal of the New Testament, and then you have Luke as a companion of Paul, who's writing a lot of these letters to the early churches, which end up in the New Testament. So Luke either writes or was present for a lot of the New Testament. So he's certainly an informed person. Um, He was most likely a Gentile. Uh, He was not an apostle, so he did not see Jesus directly. Um, So he's a, a pretty normal, ordinary guy who had a profession, um, but the gospel invaded his heart, and he had a lot of zeal and, and was you know, an instrumental piece of God spreading the message of the gospel in the early church getting started. So this should ho- offer you a lot, of, um, uh, uh, a lot of hope that, you know, as an ordinary person, um, God can use you. His gospel does read like a biography more than the others. Um, so as we're going through it, um, it may read more like a normal book, than some of the other Gospels in the Bible. Um, let's talk about the general messages. So I want to hit some general messages, talk about some points of emphasis, and then we're going to close with the uh, the story of the 10 lepers. So um, for Luke, there's some, one one thing that's really important for him is kind of this general message that Jesus is the purpose of all of history. And so this story of Jesus' life is really important because it's the inflection point around which all history revolves. So, um, Leon Morris, in his commentary, says it this way. He sets his narrative in the context of secular history more firmly than does any of the other evangelists or gospel writers. And he sees God's action in Christ as the great central intervention of God in in human affairs, whereby Salvation has worked out, so it's really important for him, um, and it's often why he's he's praised for his ability as, his, as a historian. It's really important for him for us to see um, history revolving around Jesus, and that's how we attain salvation. Um, he uses the word salvation or savior very often as, in his gospel. He's also very purposeful. He spent. You'll notice the word purpose a lot in the stories he tells. In the things that he does, he'll explain what God's purpose was behind it. So, you know, it's important for him, kind of if God is sovereign over all of history, that we kind of that we see God's hand sovereignly working his purposes throughout that history. One thing that's really encouraging is Luke makes a real point to focus on normal people. He doesn't spend a lot of time focusing on big important people. So we we get stories of Mary and Martha, Zacchaeus. Zechariah and Elizabeth, Cleopas, and others. So we get a lot of these uh, kind of stories of kind of normal, ordinary people um, that God invades and uses. And I don't know about you, but this gives me a lot of uh, a lot of peace and a lot of hope because this is what most of the church is throughout our two thousand year history. Um, I mean, you know, most of us are ordinary people, and. Um, you know, I don't have anything to offer God, and history is going to make no note of me. But I can take comfort in that I'm, God is working out His perfect plan through me, and so that should provide us a lot of a lot of peace, a lot of comfort, and also a lot of zeal to want to go out and have God use us for His purpose. He does spend a lot of time talking about women, children, poor, and the disreputable, and so these would be um, those who who are kind of helpless or don't have a lot of opportunities in in society. Um, So women, uh, children, and the poor were were often looked down upon, often viewed as inferior, um, weren't given a lot of opportunities to change change how they were viewed. But the disreputable would include people like tax collectors and sinners. So these are people who may have had wealth, may have had um, positions of power, but they were social outcasts. So they were kind of like a, a people without a, a land. And so you can think of Zacchaeus like this when um, when Jesus comes into town and says, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm going to go to your house for dinner. And everybody's just mad. And they're like, don't they know Zacchaeus is a jerk and nobody likes him? Um, and so Jesus is, is trying to clearly communicate um, that his message is for all. And so although you'll find more of an emphasis on these kind of... Um, the, these kind of classes that were that were more helpless in the ancient world. um you will see a lot of of stories with Luke and uh, from Luke with Jesus interacting with the wealthy. so um, in in uh, his book David Jones, uh, in his book Every Good thing, points out that Luke highlights Jesus's acceptance of costly gifts, keeping company with the wealthy. He records Jesus's attendance at parties and often dining with wealthy individuals. So Jesus doesn't come to despise those in power again he comes to kind of bring this message of salvation and healing and freedom for all Um, and so but he but luke here focuses more on those areas that are easier to overlook because in a human sense they don't there's no they don't have any ability to offer you anything in return Um, but god is not you know unconcerned about those who who are in positions of power and then the last message you'll see is this idea of costly grace now this phrase is not in luke but you'll see this idea, whether it's in Luke nine, where um, Jesus tells us to to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, or to count the cost. So there's this idea that um, the following Jesus is is the most rewarding thing, and it's the only way to find really true purpose and freedom in life, but that does not mean that it's easy. And so when we when we are spiritually dead, we are enemies of God. When God saves us, when he rescues us, when he brings us into his kingdom, we still live among a, a, a world of people who are spiritually dead, and they're going to despise us um, until God open their, opens their heart. And so there's, there's a lot of talk of, of um, the importance of renouncing sin, of repenting, and of you know being ready to have God work his sanctification through you. Um, as we move toward true rejoicing and joy with our Savior. Um, so those are some general messages that you'll see, but there are three real key points of interest, of emphasis that Luke makes in his gospel that are unique from the other gospels. So um, the first one is this idea of preach the gospel. So you see this, this wording of preach the gospel a lot in Paul's letters, but you don't really see it in any of the gospel narratives except for Luke. Now we shouldn 't be totally surprised because again, Luke and Paul are good friends they 're boys, they spend a lot of time together and so paul's paul 's idea of the importance of preaching the gospel, God uses that to seep into him, and then he 's putting this into his narrative. also the idea of prophecy I alluded to this a little bit earlier it 's really important for luke to to see all of his for us to see all of history as hinging around christ so paul I mean Luke will pull in a lot of Old Testament prophecy and show how Jesus is fulfilling it, probably more than any of the other gospel writers. You'll see him reference back to the prophets like Isaiah and how those prophecies point to the Savior and how Jesus in that moment is fulfilling right then what's happening. And then the last is this idea of Savior or salvation. So you don't see this as much in the other gospels, but it's similar to what John does in his gospel with the Word. So in John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John spends the whole first 18 verses of his book letting us know that Jesus is the, literally the Word of God, that through him all things were created, that through him sinners are reconciled to God. Well, Luke does something similar, except he does it with the term Savior or salvation. So in the first two chapters of Luke, we see this term Savior or salvation mentioned six times. So for example, in chapter 2, in verses 10 and 11, he says, This is where the angels are appearing to the shepherds after Jesus has been born. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all people. So you get his idea of salvation for all. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So he he really wants us to get this idea early of Jesus is the Messiah. He's the true Savior. He's the one that is here to bring salvation to people. And as I was thinking about these themes of kind of the, the importance of preaching the gospel, um, the importance of Jesus being viewed as our Savior, our salvation, and, and kind of how all of, of history God has been orchestrating his plan Uh, It really brought a lot of encouragement to my heart. And and as we were discussing some of the main points as elders to emphasize through the book, this idea of of evangelism and and God's plan kept coming up. And I I found myself being more and more encouraged and specifically encouraged just in the way of we all have people that we struggle to relate to. We all have people that we struggle to, to connect with. So it may be and it could be a variety of different things. Um, it could be you know the root of it could be pride, it could be a lack of understanding, it could be fear, other issues, um, so you know sometimes we can struggle to relate to other races, so maybe you have difficulty knowing how to talk to white people, maybe you feel uncomfortable around you know black people or you don 't know how to you feel speechless around hispanic people or or don 't know how to relate to Asian people. Uh, maybe you feel uncomfortable around people you view to to be affluent or uh, to be well-educated, or or maybe you, you don't feel like you know how to relate to homeless people because you've never experienced homelessness. Um, you know, maybe you feel like it's hard to know how to talk to old people, or you don't feel cool enough anymore to talk to high school or college students, or you know, maybe you don't know how to talk to people with big personalities who are extroverts, or you, you don't feel patient enough to talk to people who are, are shy or more introverts. The point is we all have people that we kind of naturally connect to more, more seamlessly. And then we all have people that we kind of struggle to, to maybe know how to be comfortable around them. And God's just really been encouraging me that despite all of these things that we struggle with, and despite all of our weaknesses, he is enough to break through these things. And so we don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to be, uh, um, you know, an expert in the history of another culture for God to use us to break through and share His message of salvation, and you'll see, um, you know, Luke Luke is, is a is a is a huge evangelist uh, for the gospel and making sure that salvation gets to all. And so God's really been doing doing a lot to break down my heart, some of the some of the people in my life that I doubt that He can reach, or some of the people that I maybe feel are beyond His power, to show that no, He is able to to break through and to use broken you know vessels ordinary people to send his message into to all the world so i hope as we go through over the next uh one to ten years through this book however long it takes that you'll be encouraged to share the gospel uh, not out of guilt but out of out of your heart soaring for seeing how god um, reached out and specifically you'll see it with jesus he reached out to his own people the jews he reached out to men. he reached out to women he reached out to children Uh, We see him reach out to the poor. We see him minister to the rich like Zacchaeus. We see him reach out to Gentiles and Samaritans. We see him defend the widow. We see him care for the sick. We see him heal the sick, disabled, and homeless. We see him minister to the mentally ill. So pay attention. Jesus is not going to turn away anyone who calls out to him. He will reach out to them, and he will have compassion on them, and he will offer salvation to them. So um, the New Bible Commentary kind of sums this, these, these points of emphasis up, and I want to just read a paragraph from it. It says, If salvation is for the lost, it is for all people, since all are lost. Jesus brought salvation to the people who were underprivileged in Judea, to the poor, to women, to children, and to notorious sinners. Although for the most part he confined his work to the Jews, he indicated plainly enough, that his message was also for the Gentiles, and in particular for, for the Samaritans, the hated enemies of the Jews. And that it had social consequences for the oppressed and their oppressors. So I want to just close with a story of the ten lepers in, um, in Luke chapter 17. And I'm going to read the story and then make a few points, um, a few points out of it. So this is what it says. On the way to Jerusalem, he, meaning Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as, they, as, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So yelling at Jesus. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, meaning to the Samaritan, Rise and go on your way, for your faith has made you well, for your faith has saved you. So this book, or this story in particular, really sums up Jesus' um, message of kind of salvation is for all, that all are lost, and that we are, we are dull. Apart from God, we will miss him. We will not understand who he is. We will reject him. So keep in mind, Samaritans were despised by Jewish people. They were looked down upon. There was, there was this strong racial tension. Jews would not have anything to do with Samaritans. They didn't want any dealings with them. They, would not, they didn't even want to travel through their country. They would do an end around if they had to go north or south of Samaria. So lepers were also outcasts. So if you were a leper, you didn't get to live in the normal city. You had to live outside in these separate colonies because people didn't want to be around you. They were afraid of you. They didn't want to get your diseases. So here you have this leprous Samaritan. So the point is really trying to drive home that if you're looking at a social hierarchy, this person is at the bottom there's There's not anybody below. And so Jesus is sending us a message here. So the um, Samaritans again, were looked down upon by Jews, and if you look through history, you see all all to, not just in America, everywhere. Um, we struggle to not look down upon people who are different from us. And in his autobiography, Nelson Mandela captures this really well, and he talks about the um, racism that he witnessed growing up in South Africa and um, how he viewed himself as inferior to white people for a long time. I mean, any interactions with white people make make a big impact on him. He talks about the first time he ever saw an African stand up to a white person and how he never forgot that and over many experiences and many years of his life he finally comes to the realization where he realizes africans and white people are equal Now keep in mind he's on the he's on the losing side of this racism right and even he's believing this it takes him a long journey through his life to get to the point to realize that that all people are equal in god's sight and so jesus is trying to jesus is opening this message to break down the walls that we'd like to create and the barriers that we'd like to have to say we are all guilty, speechless sinners before God and we are all going to die one day and be before him. And either we're going to be reconciled through the work of Jesus or we're not. And so Jesus says, keep that in mind as we're going through here. So, um, so we get these lepers. Now it, it, it says they come close enough. They stood at a distance. They get just just to where they know that Jesus will hear them, right? Because they're not supposed to be around the normal people. They're supposed to be segregated in their leper colony. So they yell, they cry out to him for mercy. And so Jesus tells them to go show themselves to the priest. Now, that may not mean a lot to you, but in that day and time, the priest was kind of like a health inspector. So if you got leprosy and you got cleansed from it before you could come back into society and function normally again, You had to get a clean bill of health from the priest. So when Jesus says, go show yourselves to the priest, now he didn't say you're healed. These 10 people have to leave on faith that by the time they get to the priest, their leprosy is going to be gone. Well, it must have been pretty fast. So they start on their journey and then they're all healed. And one of them is so overcome and he realizes who Jesus is that it says he comes back um, praising God with a loud voice. So it's not just that he got physical healing, but he realizes who God is. And so you have to think of the awkwardness of this situation. Here you have a Samaritan coming and making this big scene and throwing himself down in front of Jesus. That would have made the people around Jesus uncomfortable already. And you have this guy who was just yelling out that he needed healing because he's a leper and he hasn't gotten his clean bill of health. And so now he's in front of Jesus near all these other people. So if there was anybody who would not go back to Jesus and offer praise because of the social awkwardness, it's this Samaritan leper. Yet he is touched by God, and he realizes who God is, and he doesn't care about any of that stuff. And Jesus is trying to make the point. Again, salvation is for all. All are in need of salvation. But also there's this point, Jesus says, where are the nine? There's this point that we are dull to God we will we will miss God, we will never choose God apart from Him calling us and so it's easy we we love to to have our own kingdom and our own idols, and we more want to kind of view God as this like benevolent grandfather where if our if our journey hits any kind of bumps or any kind of trouble, we want him to kind of come in and fix it or make things right and then exit back out so we can continue on our own plan and so Apart from God opening our eyes, we will never recognize who God is. We'll never cry out for spiritual healing or salvation from our sins. But, but when God does break through, we can't help but come and offer him praise and offer ourselves to him for all that he's done, that we have nothing to offer him, yet he gives us salvation. And so God is, God is irresistible. Even though we are dull in our flesh, we cannot reject him once he calls us. And so the last thing I want to close with is just God is in Luke is going to explain how his kingdom works and how he works, and it's, a foreign, it's an alien concept to us. We need the Holy Spirit to show us, but he will be faithful to show us. So I want to just recount some of the stories that are included in Luke, not all of them, but some of them, so that we can be excited about what's coming. So we get Zechariah's prophecy. We get Jesus' birth. We get the angels appearing to the shepherds. We get the temptation of Jesus. Jesus heals Mary, the Beatitudes, the story of building your house on the rock. Jesus heals the centurion servant. Jesus raises a widow's son. Jesus calms the storm. Jesus heals a woman and Jairus' daughter. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Take up your cross. The transfiguration. The who is the greatest debate among the disciples. Mary and Martha. The mustard seed. The parable of the wedding feast. The parable of the great banquet the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son, the rich man and Lazarus, the parable of the persistent widow, the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus, the triumphal entry, paying taxes to Caesar, the widow's offering, Judas betraying Jesus, the Lord's Supper, Jesus prays on the Mount of Olives, Pilate delivers Jesus to death, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the road to Emmaus, Jesus appears to his disciples, and finally the ascension, the sign of Jesus sealing his victory over death and offering salvation to all. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this time this morning. I thank you that your word is real, that it is alive, that it is sharp, that it has the ability to to rebuke us, to admonish us, to encourage us, to correct us, to train us. I pray, Lord, as we go through the book of Luke, we will need your help. Without your help, we will read it and we will be not changed. Jesus, we pray that you will encourage us, that you will help us to see your point. And I pray, Lord, that um, we will become those who love you more and who see more of your glory. We cannot see your glory and not be changed. So I pray, Lord, that you will be faithful. I know you will be faithful. I pray that you will help us as we have little faith. In your name, amen.